thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to a highly fixated review of large, dense books, specifically the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Kate, and I'm one of the co-hosts here. My name is Cody. I'm Luke. And I'm Will. And we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, Do you want to introduce yourself, Seth? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Seth from Waste Mailing List on various online platforms. Um, Just a diehard Pynchon fan and um, also a brand new fan of this show as well. So great to be on, guys. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Um, This is our wrap-up episode for Vineland, so this is going to be our our last uh, recording that we do related to this book before we move on to the next season after we take a couple of weeks off as a break. Uh, There will be still some bonus material that you guys will get over that break, so you won't have to go without listening to anything. Um, But as we mentioned at the end of last week's episode, our next book is going to be Bleeding Edge. Um, So as we've done with the last couple of books, um, we are just going to sort of go over our, our thoughts on the book whether or not anything has changed since the last time we read it in our opinions and then just sort of ask some questions with our with our guest here as well um i know that you and cody were originally the 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 two that started talking to each other on the twitter cody do you kind of want to recount how seth got in touch with us or how you got in touch with him yeah i mean it was a simple i was trying to think you know we had we had brett on for mason and dixon and um i kind of wanted to just keep that trend of, of bringing someone on for the wrap-up episodes going and i thought you know seth would be the perfect perf- person to bring on um for for this one um i i listened to the episode that you were on of uh books of some substance with lot 49 i uh, really enjoyed that conversation and then um you know after we had kind of uh, got plans in place to do this you did your episodes on uh, gravity's rainbow which also was a great listen um so if anybody listening hasn't checked those two shows out please do uh, they were really, really fantastic episodes on on both of those books. Um, but yeah, I just I, I wanted to reach out and get someone who I, I knew was big in the community and and who could provide some really good insight on this book. Um, and I, you know, thankfully we were able to work things out and and bring you on, Seth. Well, thank you so much. I, you know, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver here. I'm just kind of a casual <laughs> autodidact <laughs> pension fan here. Um, but, you know, I'm happy to lend my voice to anyone who wants to discuss this truly phenomenal author. Um, can't say I've got quite the level of, you know, scholarship that someone like Brett Beeble has, but um, still, it, uh, hopefully I can help kind of elucidate some of the finer finer points of this book, because this is truly one of his best books, in my opinion, if I lay my cards on the table early here. Yeah, so kind of building from there before we get into to our individual sort of recaps, what what is your experience with, with Vineland, Seth? What stands out to you about this book as being, you know, of the quality that it is? You're one of the few people who's very, like, open, you know, um, praiser of this particular book in his canon that is is sometimes, you know, tagged, as we've mentioned many times over the show, unfairly with that pinch-on light tag to it. Yeah, uh-oh, I... I'm sure we've all we're all kind of in agreement here. Do we collectively really dislike the term pinch and light? I hate it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I it's dislike just, the term, but it's, it's I think it's pointing at something. Usually. Well I, I I suppose it's pointing to the fact that 
you know, broadly speaking, the three California novels are the the easier ones to extract some sense of um, linear and sort of diegetic meaning from. But I think people often conflate that with it being a less substantive read, which I just don't necessarily buy that opinion. You know, we can get into the the broader side of things, but um, when I think about Vineland, I think it's best considered in the context of Pynchon's entire work, or his oeuvre, if you will. Um, when I consider the overall project that this author is trying to accomplish, really, I would kind of boil it down to he's interested in the historical legacies of power and resistance to that power. And to that end, you can kind of group, with a couple of exceptions, kind of each end, V and Bleeding Edge, you can group most of his books into one of two groups. You've got the, the symphonic, quasi-fabulist history novels. That would be Gravity's Rainbow, Against the Day, Mason and Dixon. And then the kind of comparatively rational, simpler, contemporaneous California novels. Um, and when I think about, you know, that first grouping, the three historical pieces, they focus on the, the consolidation of European hegemony into a single geographical focal point, And that would be obviously America. But the three California novels really matter insofar as they focus on how the expression of that hegemony operates with specific relation to its citizens over kind of three crucial decades. You know, people often point to these as his most character-focused books. They're far less um, ensemble cast. They're much more about individuals and how this world affects them personally. You know, if I were to give it kind of one-line sound bites, and these are open to interpretation, but a lot 49. 1960s, that's a book focused on surveillance and communication. Inherent Vice, 1970s, that's about the division and control of land. And 1980s, Vineland, which is what we're talking about today, that's about the oppression of identity and erasure of outgroups. And I, um, I think without the more situated character-focused stories that anchor the impact of these larger works to Pynchon, you know, might be regarded as a spray and pray author of big ideas, but I think these smaller books are necessary to really see how these, how these, you know, I use the term historical legacies of power affect people on an individual basis. And I think Vineland is kind of the perfect, uh, the perfect bookend to that project. I'm not sure if I've gotten off track here. I have a tendency to do that, but um, what, what do you think? Do you, anyone want to bounce off that? I mean, I would, I would, I totally agree with everything you say. I, I kind of think mm -hmm. with, with reference to, you know, as you mentioned, the, the California trilogy versus the, the three big books, you know, Gravity's Rainbow, Mason and Dixon Against the Day. Mm -hmm. I think with, with the California trilogy, it's, it's sort of a more micro examination of, of a lot of the themes that he works with more, you know, like you said, focused specifically on, on America and the citizens within there. Whereas the the bigger ones are are typically a broader viewpoint, uh, are, are covering a lot more ground, uh, both you know, literally and and metaphorically, um, and I, I think that might be part of what kind of causes people to think of you know books like Vineland as as a, a lighter version of it is that it's not you know looking at things with such a broad stroke, it's not looking at the macro so much, and it's it's not as 
full of those kind of you know throw everything uh, at the wall kind of uh, you know idea books that that the bigger ones are um and it's a shame because i think you know in in kind of coming into those books with that mindset or avoiding those books because of that mindset i think people are missing out on um a lot of of what makes Penchon such a special author and and really showcases some of his best writing well, and I, th- I think, too, like Seth hit the nail on the head when he said that Vineland is about in the erasure of identity in the outgroup, where if we look at, you know, Vineland as a as a book that is more about characters than ideas, as as Seth himself has said on Twitter, it it, it leads you to the, the understanding that you kind of would have to have that for a book being the, what this book is about, like choosing to make a book that is about the erasure of identity, the erasure of the outgroup, the, you know, destruction of these sort of alternative familial or governmental units, you would need to, you would need to take a character focus to that. If you did just a thematic lens on it, it would not reach the impact to the reader that, that you would actually want out of a text trying to accomplish that. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I, I think these broad, to borrow your term, Cody, the, the macro-based novels that kind of look at the larger scale of things, they are necessary for him to establish the spread and kind of the diversity of his interests and his concerns. But without bringing it back to people and individuals, it's really hard to understand the impact of how these things affected people because all of his ideas are based on historical moments and historical events and how they impacted people um, on a day-to-day basis. And I think Vineland is the perfect expression to see through the lens of a single family um, how the failure of the counterculture and the co-option of this identity essentially impacted the lives of everyone who followed. Yeah, one thing I think that's interesting about Vineland is um, it is kind of a cross between the larger novels and the shorter novels in that I think y'all are right in that Vineland's more character-focused and less idea-focused. Um, but, you know, Vineland still covers the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. Um, it, has a, it, has a, it has a wider scope than Inherent Vice or Crying Block 49 or even Bleeding Edge. And I do think that that kind of plays into why people um, view it as pinch and light is that it's kind of like a cross between the longer novels and the shorter novels in some ways, uh, where it kind of incorporates aspects of both. One thing that we've all left out is, and it's not more important, but just the, the idea that the larger the novels get, the more formally experimentative he got. And because even, anyway. Uh, the the point being that Vineland is right in between. It's slightly shorter than Bleeding Edge, and it's slightly longer than Inherent Vice, but it is much more in the mode of Against the Day and The Crying of Lot 49 than it is to any of his more recent novels that are much more f- formally straightforward. Mm-hmm. And there is a, there's a strong unity between all of that, and I think that's Part of why Vineland gets this strange frustration for most readers, whether they're coming from the perspective of a fan of Pynchon, where they're looking for that depth and that complexity and that density, but they're not seeing the experimentation that they're used to that coming alongside, and vice versa for newcomers, they're still getting this the crazy, you know, expansive systems ideas. They're just being abbreviated massively. 
And I think a lot of the techniques that people would come to expect from the larger novels, these sort of um, uh, these slightly ensemble casts where it's not focused, you know, you might get the impression when you just jump into Vineland that this is a story about Zoid Wheeler, but he's someone who's, you know, abandoned for a good sort of 70% of the book, give or take. It is, uh, you've got these wide reaching cast of characters. You've got a very analeptic temporal focus where um, he's hopping between decades here. So I see what you mean. It does kind of fit in that sort of middle ground between the two, which maybe fed into some of people's frustration with it when it first came out. But I also think it was set up to, you know, fight a losing battle because what the hell do you write after Gravity's Rainbow, right? He had impossible. <laughs> yeah, well, he had impossible expectations set up for yeah. himself. I think the only equivalency I could think of in a person's career where they had to follow something like that was Joyce following Ulysses and he wrote the monster that was Finnegan's Wake after that. So I guess he managed to subvert people's <laughs> expectations after all. But yeah. that's not what we're here for today. I am curious to see if, uh, you know, if, a big if here, if uh, P.T. Anderson is doing a even a loose adaptation of Vineland, if that's going to bring more readers to the table and maybe change the general reception to the novel, um, if, if more people more people read it for the first time and maybe more people come back to it after being away from it for a long time. And I pose um, an idea in the form of a question, uh, which is, uh, do you think the point in your pension reading arc would affect your reception to Vineland? Uh, and I sort of, my question comes with an inbuilt answer, which I do think depending on when you choose to read it in your journey with Pynchon, such as it is, will affect what you think of it. And I think the later you read it into his career, the better it reads. But mm. um, I'm wel welcome to hear any counter arguments to that. I don't think I could come up with a counter argument to that. I think that it's, I think that it is typically unfairly pushed to the front as in, you know, start with this or crying of lot 49 or inherent vice or bleeding edge. Mm -hmm. um, when in reality, there's some very difficult moments to parse out just what Pinchon is doing structurally in this novel. As, yeah. as we got hung up with ourselves, as we recorded our episodes on those, those moments in the novel. And so I think that there is, a, there is a willingness to by most to say that you should read it at the beginning. But I think you're absolutely right, Seth, in that the more you understand how Pinchon likes to structure his novels or, or how he plays with frame. I particularly like that we read this after Mason and Dixon because of the experimentation with frame, um, especially like starting in chapter nine that is present in this book that, and, you know, getting it to, to the broader idea of, of these, you know, moments in history, these cycles of forces and counterforces that he writes about. I don't know if you're going to be able to understand all of that or pick up on it as cleanly if you approach it from, from the beginning rather than the end. I would say that it is certainly, to me anyway, more worthwhile reading it later in your time with him, because uh, this was initially one that I read pretty early on, and I picked up significantly more this time than I did the first. Yeah, it was definitely one of the later ones for me, and it really just came down to the ability to find it in the first place. It was one that I never was able to track down in a bookstore around here. Um, so I just, you know, I would go through and pick up what I could of his work, and uh, Vineland was maybe the 
second or third to last of his books that I read. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think you're absolutely right in that. It, yeah, it it does kind of require, maybe not require, but it it, it helps to have uh, a sort of familiarity with his work prior to not just prior to Vineland chronologically, but also just his work in general. I think it does kind of require um, a little bit of understanding, like you know, like both you and Kate said, um, to to really I think get the most out of this. That being said, though, I think. You know, even if you track back to when the book came out, you know, the critical reception was, you know, pretty, pretty bad. Uh, we mentioned, you know, with Harold Bloom saying there was nothing, not a redeeming sentence in the book or something to that effect that, you know, you, you would think that the, the critics at the time wouldn't have had such a, a hyperbolic response to it. But, you know, I think that that kind of piggybacks more on the fact that it was, you know, 17 years after Gravity's Rainbow. And, you know, like you said, Seth, how do you follow that? particular book um you know expectation is going to be tremendous so i I think every reader's journey is going to be different but yeah i do think that in the end it probably helps to come to this one a little bit later in that journey yeah and in particular i think that the 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 two later big books in mason and dixon against the day i mean not only thematically and literally textually are they very heavily related to vineland in a way that uh, Gravity's Rainbow almost isn't at all. Mm-hmm. The, the, I think that having that kind of thematic and character context for Vineland really opens it up for analysis, even from the perspective of somebody who's read, you know, V and Gravity's Rainbow and Lot Forty Nine, and said, "Hey, these are these are great books," and I read them a certain way, and then you know, you get to Vineland, and for some reason, you don't like it. I think that having that kind of having that emotional side of things more you know, giving you something to attach it to as, as a fan of his books, I think really uh, assists or assisted a lot of people in, in learning to love Vineland, I suspect. Can I um, be a little indulgent here for a second and try to link Mason and Dixon to more or less some effect here to Vineland? Oh, please do. That. What are we doing if not indulging? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> love it. Um, when I think about Vineland and indeed the California novels as a, a larger arc, I kind of often start with the question of why California? And um, I, because Mason and Dixon was one of the first ones that I read, it's often the one that I turn to as kind of a map of what this guy is interested in. And there's this line that gets quoted um, usually in scholarly analysis and whatnot on Mason and Dixon. It's from part two, page 345 or something. I pulled it up when I was um, thinking about kind of doing this recording this morning. Um, it's not a particularly long quote, but I'm sure you guys will all recognize it. Uh, it reads, Does Britannia, when she sleeps, dream? Is America her dream? in which all that cannot pass in the metropolitan wakefulness is allowed expression away in the restless slumber of these provinces and on westward wherever tis not yet mapped nor written down nor ever by the majority of mankind seen serving as a very rubbish tip for subjunctive hopes for all that may not yet be true and he kind of introduces this really interesting concept to me, which is the realm of subjunctive hopes. And the way that I read that is kind of a space both in history and in province or in provenance, excuse me, in time, where 
alternative possibilities of what an American future might look like. And I think, you know, California is often heralded as America's America or the West of the West. It's, you know, the kind of apotheosis of what the American experience could be. And um, I, I think that in Pynchon's fiction, at times it's almost the seat of this American promise and the betrayal of that promise. You know, there's, there's this push and pull between what the counterculture could have accomplished in their time in sort of the long 60s and what it ended up being following its dissolution. Um, and I think uh, Vineland is kind of the perfect expression as both a novel of place and a novel of people um, to kind of play with this idea of the subjunctive hopes. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to bounce off that. Well, that actually brings up, you know, a question that I was considering asking you in that what what specifically going to the idea of land and, you know, the, the place of subjunctive hope and all that that you're talking about, what purpose does all of the logging metaphor and obviously the cover of the 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 book itself and these descriptions of the the wilderness surrounding Vineland being impassable uh, mean to you out of this book it seems like that's one thing that a lot of people don't talk too much about you can almost pretty easily disconnect it from your your brain as you're reading it through the book if you're not looking for it you i think a lot of people would look at that cover and not immediately assume that that what is on the cover is related to the content of the book if they knew just sort of a brief outline. I was wondering if you could speak more on the nature aspect of this book, which certainly does share some commonality with Mason and Dixon. Yep. Um, which of you was reading The Ice Shirt by Volman? Cody, was that you? I finished it. Uh, I think finished Luke finished it, it also. Mm-hmm. So I just finished that recently as well. Um, I hadn't intended to find a synergy between those books either, but um, there's a line late in Vineland, which I think is interesting, uh, where Zoid is thinking about kind of uh, the life that he set up for Prairie. And uh, I think I wrote it down. Yeah, I found it. Um, he must have chosen right for a change. That time they'd come through the slides and storms to put in here to harbor in Vineland, Vineland the Good. It's around page 320-something. And that choice of words, Vineland the Good, is interesting because that's a phrase that is used in the Vinland sagas, Vinland Mm -hmm. the Good. Um, And to those who aren't familiar, the Vinland sagas kind of right around 1000 BC. Uh, It's the story of Norse colonization of Greenland and Western Canada and the expulsion um, of the Norse by the indigenous people who lived there at the time. Now, America has this fascinating history of settlement and displacement and resettlement and displacement in these kind of um, what you almost might call sedimentary layers of history where people have arrived, taken over a region of land, expelled the people who were there, and then new people arrive, and it kind of repeats in this cycle. And I think there's a possibility that the the image and the metaphor of logging as this changing the landscape as a reflection of how the people have been changed, clearing out what was there to make something new is uh, relating to Pynchon's views on what the American experience, both sort of literally and spiritually, could be. Does that make any degree of sense? Yeah, I'd say that makes complete yeah. sense. 
Um, Luke or Will, do you have any thoughts as far as how your opinion has changed of the books from the previous, you know, read-throughs you've done of it? Did you have any extended thoughts on on what really stood out to you this time through? So I I I had only read it the one time before, um, and I had read uh, all of the previously published novels as well as Mason and Dixon and Inherent Vice before I read Vineland. And this time through, it's not so much that I appreciated it more because I I really connected with it the first time through, thankfully. And this time, I just kind of felt like I was connecting a lot more with the deeper themes that do connect back to his his earlier work and then through things like Mason and Dixon and Inherent Vice. I, I, it's not so much that I appreciated it more, and it's not so much that I got more of the thematic, uh, you know, meaning. If you want to talk about reading that way, but I definitely feel like I I, I understand it more densely than I did prior. And I, uh, yeah. Other than that, I, I don't have any specific changes in my interpretation, except perhaps that um, I'm more confident that Zoid is. Prairie's real father, Kate. <laughs> I would be deeply concerned if you had done this many episodes on Violent and not understood it deeper after this. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, absolutely. Luke, what about you? Yeah, so kind of like Will, I don't know if my interpretation or views have really changed that much. Um, I had read it about, I think, one and a half times before because I'd, I'd read it whenever I was working through Pension about 10 years ago. And then I I'd somewhat participated in the group read on the subreddit, but I uh, fell off due to uh, life kind of getting in the way. Um, I think this time around I focused how uh, Pension, like, you know, there's different parts of this novel where it kind of struck me as like, you know, like, some of the parts with like where DL goes to the like is doing like uh, fight competitions and stuff and like you know the motocross thing and which we went over I think last week and there's different parts of this novel that just strike me as like as very American and kind of you know like modern Americana um, where it seems like Pynchon has kind of finally spent some time in Middle America uh, rather than being so focused on California or New York. Um. Yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with that, but it it does. It, this does seem to be kind of. I picked up more on his views on America as a whole, uh, rather than I think in the past I focused more on the hippie aspect and the 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 like the sixties seventies timeline, rather than the more modern stuff. Um, I also I probably picked up more on a lot of the references thanks to y'all, like the music references and TV references. And uh, the different um, like fake movies also stood out to me. This read uh, as being because I think in the past I didn't necessarily I I just didn't really think about it that much. But I think I assumed that at least some of them are real. Uh, I didn't necessarily realize that all of them are fake, um, which is a bit embarrassing to admit. But um, <laughs> that's what stood out to me the most. I think though is to go back to the Americana stuff. Is just you know he seems to. Like I said, it's just kind of like a love letter to America as a whole rather than to California or New York or different parts of it in particular. It seems to be kind of a wider we kind of a wider view of America in this novel than I think I originally realized. Yeah. 
I picked up on that as as well, Luke. And one thing, I guess there's one qualitative difference between my readings, and it would be that uh, the first time through, I thought it was much more bitter than I I read it this time. It, it might simply be due to the episodic nature of recording these episodes. You know, one week apart. Even if you're reading ahead, you still you're focusing on one chapter at a time, and that might just you know let the let the little buoyant humor bits keep the other stuff from bringing you down too much but i also think that it's it's a book that seems very very grim on its surface and is full of joy once you get past that well he does leave open the possibility of hope particularly in those final moments with um prairie and the dog right yeah and mm -hmm. I, I i think he's probably allowed a degree of sentimentality to enter into his experience i mean this was published in 1990 right so at this point yeah moved to new york city he's gotten married he's settled down he's had a son and he's now giving him some you know giving himself some time to reflect and kind of investigate what happened to this this generation of you know iconoclast leftists hippies anti-establishment folk these people he considered his peers and yeah there was a lot of erasure and co-option and you know, I often just sum it up to the word failure of this movement, but you know, you can't, you can't spend your entire life in that space. It'll really ruin you. It'll break you down. And I think he's allowed himself the possibility of hope. So when I, you know, when I use that phrase, the realm of subjunctive hope, which I pull from Mason and Dixon again, it's because there is still uh, the potential for things going in a direction that is positive, for lack of a better word. I think the reason the rocket doesn't hit the roof of the Orpheus Theater at the end of Gravity's Rainbow is because he's leaving that tiny Delta V, that tiny little possibility that, yeah, we are on the precipice of everything going wrong here, but we're not there yet. And I think there's the possibility that we could turn this around. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I, th I think Zoid's a good representation of that, too. I think his being a part of that 60s counterculture movement that ultimately fell apart and caused, well, not necessarily caused, but laid the groundwork for what came in the 80s. Um, but in, in light of all that, Zoid still remains almost endlessly optimistic and, and hopeful for what could come in the future. And I, I think that's a, a good way to kind of have that that lens of optimism that that does kind of shine through this this book even in the you know the darkest parts of it um you know by the end you know like you said Seth I think the the ending really does kind of leave the door open for for a little bit of hope at the time that that we could turn things around and that they could you know prairie and, and her generation could be the ones to move it forward and and get things on the right track finally Particularly because, you know, the novel opens with Zoid, this phenomenal character, and it ends with Prairie. She's the next generation of, you mm -hmm. know, if we're going to, again, believe that she is Zoid's daughter, which I buy that premise as well. Um, she resists Brock Vaughn's temptation in those final moments. Um, granted, there's a little bit of deus ex machina by way of Reaganomic budget cutting at the end, but um, uh, but she doesn't succumb to him in the same way her mother Frenessi does. You know, there's the possibility of resistance here, and I think yeah. that is that's a hopeful notion. 
yeah, the, the counterforce in Gravity's Rainbow, just to tie it all back to the larger scope of his novels, it, it's framed as as almost, uh, and you know, I'm sure there are other there are other ways to interpret it, but I, I, it's in terms of the hope that you get out of that, like you said, the rocket's hanging overhead. It hasn't hit yet. But the hope is like some infinite regress of force and counterforce pushing back, and maybe eventually counterforce will win. And that doesn't matter because we must persevere. Um, and then this book kind of takes a, a much more mature perspective and just says, yeah, but there's going to be a new generation. There's going to be new trees eventually. Even if it takes two million years, there will be another forest here. Mm-hmm. Which is perfectly fitting given that the final scene of the book takes place in a forest, right? She wakes up <laughs> underneath the redwood trees with, um, what's the dog's name? It's like Dixon, but not. Desmond. Desmond, Desmond yeah. that's it. Yeah, licking her face. It's a great scene. Yeah. Especially given at the end of the book, too, you have that that imagery that Pinchon puts in the reader's head of this like cosmic balance of these tiny little things that will continue to, to, to hopefully run it back to center when some great evil comes along. Um, it's really telling that all of the stuff that we've been discussing the past couple minutes was on his mind, given that he does put it right on the page there for the reader to experience. Mm-hmm. Well, it also ends with the, the blue Jake comes back, the imagery, the, the, like the, essentially the bluebird of happiness is there um, as it was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Seth, I wanted to get your your opinion. You you mentioned in a tweet a while back that um, you thought a Vineland adaptation would be uh, best handled by David Lynch. We we have talked endlessly about this, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm glad someone else is is on the same page. I'd like to get your your opinions as to why why you think um, Lynch would be a, a good fit for a book like this. We Kate and I especially have really. Um, talked almost endlessly about uh, our, yeah. our mutual love of, of Twin Peaks and, and Lynch's <laughs> catalog in general and, and his his abilities as a director. And you know, I'm, I'm 100% with you. I do think he would be a prime candidate to adapt something like this, but I'm curious to hear what, what it is about his work that you uh, are drawn to in relation to this book. Well, I think the um, you hit the nail on the head that the primary source material that I would be drawing from when thinking that Lynch is appropriate for this would be Twin Peaks as well. And obviously there's the um, the setting imagery of the town of Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. but also just the, um, the dissonance between the various plot lines throughout that particular show. Um, I've been re-watching it slowly again recently because it's been years. Uh, I, I just think the way that he can blend these both extremely funny moments with the just incredible darkness of what he does, particularly with like the Black Lodge sequences and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I think um, yeah. I, I think he'd just be such a perfect director for it. But also, you know, I'm not going to complain if Paul Thomas Anderson does do the Vineland adaptation after all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that's again, that's something we've we've discussed quite often here. And I do think I think we had this discussion a few episodes ago where I'm, I'm of the opinion at this point, I can't, I don't think anybody can certainly say it is, he is doing violent, but I think it's seeming more and more like it, but I'm getting the impression given the change in time that he's updating it to a contemporary setting. I think this is going to be more of a situation of like what oil was to there will be blood. 
I think he's he may just be pulling ideas out of Vineland and taking maybe the more adaptable parts of it and, and plugging that into a more modern setting and, and kind of playing with the same general ideas of it. But I don't it doesn't look like it's gonna be a, a more one to one adaptation like uh, Inherent Vice was. Just on that note, briefly, um, you know, I don't want to direct the conversation too far away from the book itself, but, you know, to speculate, do you guys think it's going to work as a modern adaptation? Just because Vineland in my head is such a product of its time and its space that I... I suppose the spirit of it could be there, and I'm sure it'll be an entertaining movie regardless, but would it work as opposed to something that's a straight adaptation right across like Inherent Vice? I, I don't think it would. I, I think the a lot of the themes and ideas and concepts of this book are so um, crucially tied to the 60s, 70s, and 80s that... I I don't think modernizing it will have the same impact on the story as as having it in the time that it actually takes place. I do think that there are some similarities between just in, not in terms of this is not necessarily uh related to the book too much but there are some similarities between the late 2010s and the uh back half of the 60s or I think like the long 60s which is a concept that um comes up i think in uh seth's talk with books of some substance um mm-hmm. just in terms of civil unrest um people thinking that the revolution that there's some type of revolution happening there's some type of sea change happening um and i so i could maybe see the new vineland being set or like the paul thomas anderson's vineland adaptation transferring the parts in the 60s to the late 2010s or something um that's about all I have in terms of that. I, I personally, I agree with y'all in that the Vineland is very of its time. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very connected to, you know, the, the, the sixties kind of high and then the, the sixties kind of the seventies and eighties kind of hangover from that high. Uh, and I don't see how you're going to like, say you were to set the, the parts that are in the past in the eighties or the nineties, you know, there's not really, those are not times of civil of, of great civil unrest, at least. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to do stuff like uh, the you know, like stuff like the College of Rock and Roll or the the universe. I can't figure what that the name of their little nation state is. Um, you're not going to be able to do that kind of believably and set it in the 80s or the 90s. And in my opinion, um, I am kind of confused about the the whole modern setting thing that's going on. Um, and I, I think we're going to get, I think it's going to be kind of more like the master is to be where there are some similarities. Um, but I don't think that, you know, like the master, like the finished product of the master, I think is, is less similar to be than the screenplay was. Um, just from kind of picking up stuff, just from like Reddit comments and articles on the internet. Um, but that being said, I mean, it is pretty damning that they're shooting in Northern California. They're shooting the movie in Northern California. Um, there's some aspects of the casting that uh, the casting calls and different stuff that does seem to point to a connection to Vineland. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just on the note of you um, relating the unrest of the 60s to the early aughts and whatnot, 
to spin it in kind of a positive direction, I think that's part of what makes his novels so timeless is the fact that you can basically drop yourself into any decade and you're going to find periods of significant social unrest, forces of force and counterforce butting up against one another. And you can find and you can see a degree of your struggle reflected back to you in a lot of what's covered in these books. You know, the most recent would probably be the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. That's a pretty mm-hmm. significant period of social unrest or the um, uh, the Dodds decision with Roe v. Wade and all the protests we've seen from that. Right. Like, I think there's a degree of reflection and cyclicality you'll see here. Um which is why a novel written in the 90s about the 80s-ish uh, still reads so well today. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to, to ask your opinion, Seth, on the Thanatoids um, and your, your opinion on what they may represent, their inclusion in the book here. It's been something that we've spent a good chunk of time over the course of this you know, season of our show talking about and speculating on. I wonder if you had any additional thoughts you wanted to add to about about that aspect of this novel in particular. Yeah, they're they're a strange group of creatures, I must say. I'm still not a hundred percent sure what to do with them, which is part of why I'm kind of interested in them. But I mean, they're they're sort of these they're living in the bardo in a way, right? Somewhere mm-hmm. between life and death. This um, kind of corporeal suspension between different realms um and yeah i um that was another thing as well they're tv addicts a lot of them correct like they're addicted to tv as i understand um and i think there's maybe an argument to be made that they play into kind of the primacy of the tv screen glowing over the entirety of Vineland throughout the novel. Um, you know, I might, it might be apocryphal, but I read this, this thing once that Wallace said in a letter to Franzen that Vineland was the result of pinching and smoking pot and watching TV for like 17 years, which seems that is true. Yeah. Uh, that seems reductive and missing the point, but I wonder if there's a, a degree of truth in it insofar as, the uh, the TV, as it relates to the book, is kind of a source of sedation and pacification, right? Um, it's something that you see kind of hanging over it the entirety of the novel. It's possible that um, the TV is kind of... Um, uh, I'm letting this thought drag away from me here. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone help me out here for a second. I was just going to say to to kind of build on the the TV thing. I think it's an interesting. Um, I, I think there's an interesting duality at play here with with Pinchon's approach to television. I think that you you have simultaneously this um, this sort of warning about the the dangers of of television as it being used as a device of pacifism and and um, a way to placate. Uh, the population, you can, you know, you can kind of keep people focused on that, you know, and, and the government can kind of use that opportunity to do whatever it is they want to do in the background. At the same time, I think it it, it also is in a weird way, a, a sort of love letter to certain types of television programming. I think 
Um, you know, Pinchon's love of, of cartoons is pretty clear throughout some of his books. You know, we talked about it a little bit in Lot 49. And I think here, when you, you could kind of view the ending of this book, like Brock's uh, Deus Ex Machina, that's some Looney Tune shit. Like, it's, it's <laughs> oh, a Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner thing, you know? And um, I, I think that, that it's really interesting. I think the than- to tie this to the Thanatoids, um, we've, we've kind of talked about how, you know, them as being a sort of stand-in for uh, specifically Vietnam vets coming back. Um, both the ones that did come back and the ones that didn't. Um, and they're, you know, the, the Thanatoids are kind of these living ghosts that kind of float throughout the, the story. And, and we see them at various times and, and yeah, they're addicted to the television and, you know, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack and we probably could have done an entire discussion on just them and, and their representation, uh, in the book. I, I do kind of think that it's, you know, there's something to that of, of using television as a, a sort of medication or, or you know, um, opiate as it were to to occupy those uh, those veterans when they came back again to sort of you know keep things keep them distracted keep everyone else distracted. Um, that's I mean that's kind of as much as I can put into a, a short statement on that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, you you concretized my thought quite well there. Um, you you kind of put it into words that I was not getting there at the moment. Um, I think it is kind of a means to put these feelings that you have been given a raw deal, whether it be, you know, countercultural activists and whatnot, or like you said, Vietnam vets, put them in a state of suspension where if you can keep them constantly entertained, um, then there's the possibility that they won't fight back against these powers of oppression. And I think what's interesting is the way that that uh, new generations are being inundated to this from the moment they're born onward. I think back to kind of chapter six for Nessie and she's got her new partner Fletcher or something. They've got a little kid named Justin and there's that line, he's asleep in the tube light. Like the moment Mm -hmm. people are born, they're inundated with this source of pacification. Um, And I kind of, I, I always, half mentally linked these thanatoids with that um that notion so that's kind of my main thoughts on it but i like the idea of the um the vietnam vets i don't think i had uh, investigated that nearly as deeply as you guys have well and i think the other part to that too from a pacification perspective and, and it coming up you know as early as when you're a child is that later when frenesi and flash's child re-enters the picture as they're going back to vineland he recounts that one of his his friends at school tells him as a method of, you know, mental pacification of his parents arguing to pretend that there's a television frame around them and mm-hmm. that, you know, that that is a way for him to to not only process what's happening with his parents, but also to to sort of rob some of the power of it to help it easier for to, to help him process it easier. So the, those themes are certainly all over the book as it relates to television, just as a concept which obviously builds out to the essay that Pinchon wrote for the New York Times book review on on Sloth. Um, and I think it's from that same chapter. I remember the scene with the frame pr- picture. There's a frame around them. Um, isn't there a moment there where Frenessi is also using the TV to clear evil spirits from her room as well? I, I remember that as an image. Um, and it kind of relates back to that idea as well. 
Yeah, completely. Luke or Will, did either of you have thoughts on the Thanatoids you wanted to throw out now that we've finished the book? Um, to go back to the TV, I don't really have thoughts on the Thanatoids, to be honest. Um, to go back to the inundation of of uh, people of humanity by television, um, I think it is interesting that um, you know in the final chapter, uh, Sasha, whenever Prairie and Furnessy are basically first meeting or meeting for the first time since you know Prairie was six months old or something. Sasha relates a story about uh, how much Prairie loved Gilligan's Island uh, when she was, you know, four or five, six months old, um, which does speak to what Seth was just talking about with how, you know, from a, a very young age, people are, um, you know, TV is a, is a very large uh, part of their lives. Um, it also makes me think of there's kind of this might be apocryphal, but there is. I have seen a quote online of somebody shared this story where they, somebody asked Thomas Pynchon's sister, uh, what do you think Thomas Pynchon is doing right now? And she said, watching the Brady Bunch, um, <laughs> which is, is just really funny to me in a lot of different ways. Uh, but this book does have, we, and we've been over some of them in our discussions, but this book does have a lot of similarities with sitcoms. Mm-hmm. Um, which I do think is, is interesting, uh, to think about, um, and go back to the Wallace stuff. I do find it interesting that Wallace wrote that to Franzen. I mean, it was private correspondence. There is a way that writers kind of talk to one another about other writers where you are kind of, kind of constantly trying to tear down other writers just to kind of make yourself feel better and, and stuff. But it is interesting that Wallace said that considering his, his later obsession and even his obsession in, in interviews and his nonfiction um with the ways that we distract ourselves and the ways that we self-medicate and the ways in which stuff like television is used to kind of distract ourselves away from the void um yeah but um pension being kind of the you know people call him the paranoid that he is uh, i think he also has this fascination with um encoding and secret messages and whatnot being sent through various channels of communication you definitely see that in lot 49 oh yeah but um i the tv doesn't necessarily have to be just a source of narcotic sedation um, it could also be an incitement for certain excitatory feelings. Um, again, I think back to Frenessi and her relationship to the TV. At some point, I think it's that same chapter six, but I can't remember exactly. She flips on the TV and it's Chips, California Highway Interstate Patrol. Mm -hmm. um, and she gets turned on at the look of a man in a suit, um, a cop suit. And because obviously there's this long arc of her as being kind of a victim participant in this co-option of the People's Republic of Rock and Roll by way of Brock Vaughn, who she's, you know, helplessly attracted to, this guy in a suit. I think there's the possibility that Pynchon's poking at the idea that maybe television is also a way of inciting particular feelings into people uh, in a way to not only you know, get them to uh, sort of, again, for want of a, a different phrase, pacify them, but also to get them more on the side of the establishment. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think that there's, if, if I have one major issue with this book and analyzing it these days, 
these days is the way I analyzed it when it came out. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you didn't? Sadly, I didn't. Uh, individual, you know, sperm and egg cells, not very good at reading. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> but I do think that there's a lot of the discussion of the tube in this book that maybe even Pynchon would find himself disagreeing with 15, 20 years later in Inherent Vice. It's it's not necessarily that I, I think that, you know, none of what he's talking about in this book is relevant today, but more that the specific verbiage, the way the tube is talked about, I think that that kind of collapses as you get cable television, as you get satellite, as you get the internet. I think there's a there's a presumption that come that comes from the generally paranoid mode of analysis that he works in, but also a, a, just a specific presumption in the you know 30s through 80s and probably early 90s era of television that there are 15 channels at the end of that. There are 15 channels that are controlled by you know four or five different companies who have these interests and those interests. And today, we still have that same kind of um, the same kind of dynamic of the media corporations being minimized. But there is a difference in the way that that happens. And I think that a lot of this book presumes that the mass media is one source with one channel, or, well, you know, 15 channels, that everyone is in tune with. And so there's a, a sense of control in a in a more traditionally um, postmodern cyberpunk kind of way that has fallen apart in terms of how we conceive of mass media. And I, I think that that has something to do with um, what, what you brought up, Seth, with the uh, sub subjunctive hopes that may not have been true, that they're, the television, like all art always has been, is another form of telling stories and is, you know, people saying, oh, I went over that hill and I saw this crazy thing. And the person might be lying, but the important part is that it's an excuse for people to connect with one another and it's a cultural phenomenon that, you know, even if there was no leopard on the other side of the mountain, hey, now there's this myth of leopards on the other side of the mountain and now we don't go there and that shapes our society and it's always been that way. And I think that there's this kind of fractalization of those influences that he talks about the television in this book that um, don't don't hold up to you know thirty years later. I mean, the guy could only be so prophetic, right? You know, oh, absolutely. It's 1990. I mean, <laughs> it's not a criticism. We have to hold him to. No, no, no. Of course, of course. But we we have to hold him to a realistic standard. I don't think you know anyone could have predicted exactly how things were going to play out. Um, you know, Willie used the word fractalization. Um, I would say fractalization and consolidation of these sort of equivocal mixed feelings on television. Because yes, I think from an abstract sort of social critical standpoint, he has a lot of thoughts on it. But I also think the guy legitimately enjoys what television offers him. And I think he's trying to kind of um, square the circle of these competing impulses to the best of his abilities circa 1990. Yeah, and I, and I wonder if the Thanatoids aren't in some way an outgrowth of that. 
just like trying to pin down what it is about television circa 1984 that was lacking in terms of what what value he viewed it to have. I'll actually be really curious, Will, if your opinion, as you just stated, it changes at all after reading Bleeding Edge. I was going to say the same thing. There's there's almost there's almost a taking all of the context of what you've just said. There is almost a a hill or a bell curve where you have you know Vineland where it is eh, his estimation gets a little bit better with inherent vice, and then it drops off a cliff after Bleeding Edge, especially with the advent of the internet. Um, there's a scene towards the end of that novel where one of the Pinchon stand-ins essentially explains to his daughter that. Um, you know, he didn't let them watch cop shows, but it's even worse now that there's the internet, and it's going to be even worse once the internet's in cell phones. Um, I know that that's the one book of his that you haven't read yet, so I'll be very curious what your thoughts are as we go through that book and whether they change at all. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that side of uh, his social criticism in that book. I, I do wonder if it's not one of those situations where he can criticize the paradigm with which he was analyzing the issues without actually taking away the, the criticism at its core. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious as well. Yeah. Um, uh, Seth, I also wanted to ask you about Brock Vaughn's death in particular. Um, some of us thought it was very satisfying on this show. Some of us didn't. We also had, you know, in- different interpretations of, of what it may mean or what, what Pinchon is describing there. I was curious if you had any additional color that you can add from your perspective of of that scene and sort of how his story comes to an end. Well, I'm going to play my cards here a little bit. The first time I read the book, I didn't even realize he died for whatever reason. I had skipped over that mentally in my head. And I had just remembered the part where he gets sucked back up into the helicopter. And that was kind of the <laughs> end of my arc with him. And I didn't realize sure. the helicopter crashes unless I'm greatly mistaken. Right. He returns to the base it came from and drops off the guy who, who reeled him back up, and then he takes off again by himself. Yeah. And then, it and then he ends up in a car, and then he ends up calling Blood and Vato. But I do think mm-hmm. you could interpret it as the helicopter crashes, and the rest of it is something like a dream sequence or like a death sequence. Uh, it's open to interpretation, I would say. Yeah, I, to be honest, I never really thought of him much further beyond that scene where he essentially, you know, his budget gets cut and he's absorbed back up into the helicopter. Um, I was always interested in kind of the implications of what that meant and uh, Pynchon's staunch anti-Reaganism. But yeah, I'm gonna have to disappoint you. I didn't really have a lot of thoughts beyond that because he was... Uh, among the less interesting points of my focus while I read it. Well, I wonder, can you kind of build on what you were talking about just there with, with Brock's um, ascension back into the helicopter and the the budget cut and everything? Because the reason I ask is that a lot of people have kind of cried foul about that being a deus ex machina and, and cheapening the ending. I, I don't really buy any of that. I think it's really, as you as you mentioned, it's a really damning, um, you know, portrayal of of Reaganomics at its absolute worst. Um, so I, w- I would love to hear a little bit more about that from your your perspective. Yeah, of course. Um, while I did evoke the term Deus Ex Machina earlier, I don't believe that's the case. That's just how I've heard it described before. 
Um, he makes it very clear in the book that he, Pynchon, doesn't approve of what Reagan did for the country. I think back to that um, that famous line, what was it? Um, again, another one I wrote down. Uh, it's the whole Reagan program, isn't it? Dismantle mm-hmm. the New Deal, reverse the effects of World War II, restore fascism at home and around the world, flee into the past. Can't you feel it? All the dangerous, childish stupidity. I mean, Reagan's domestic policy was basically a reduction in federal responsibility in solving social problems and reducing uh, restrictions on businesses and whatnot. But again, Pynchon is always coming at it this from the angle of the preterite or the socially disenfranchised or, you know, the um, the non-dominant class class. class yeah. And um, one of the ways that people often kind of undervalue the Reaganomic budget cuts and the reduction of federal spending is the fact that those cuts affect people who are poor, disenfranchised minority groups first. Um, and people who are in vulnerable situations. You think back to Frenessi when we first meet her, she's in witness protection, right? And she goes to she goes to cash that witness protection stipend um and she realized that the cat the check is no good because she's a victim of i think his term is reaganomic axe blades mm-hmm. um and it's interesting to me that he positions that as yet yeah, look these are the vulnerable people who are paying the price but also in that final moment it's not just them as well it's these sources of antagonism it's everyone suffers under this particular political economic ideology um so by that account giving him sort of what appears at first a looney tunes ending but is actually quite a poignant um sort of a, a political criticism i think it's a great ending for him personally yeah no i i fully agree and i think to to kind of wrap it back around to what we were talking about earlier with the idea of an adaptation of this being modernized. I think this is another one of those examples where it would be hard to modernize that particular aspect of this story. I think um, the Reaganomics and the Reagan administration itself plays such a vital role into how this story unfolds. And it's not... History is certainly a very cyclical thing and, and you know those political ideologies and and machinations don't ever really go away but i think that the uh the sort of genesis of of reaganomics and and reagan's administration is vital to this particular story and i I don't think there's really a modern um analog for that i think that certainly some of the same issues that were that reagan was you know attacking and and you know hacking away at you know especially with um you know the treatment of of you know minorities and and people who are already disenfranchised and and you know everyone else that was affected by it i think it was a little bit more amplified at that time i think this by modernizing it it's not really the the newness of it is kind of lost and i think that's such a crucial part of the story so i don't know I'm, I'm, that's that's another one of those things that kind of gets me about adapting it like that well, that's, you know, he runs the risk of um, essentially boiling it down to just the slapstick moments and yeah. just the aesthetics yeah. of it all. Like, yes, it will probably be a very entertaining film, but will it be substantive in the same way that this book is? You know, I, I think to just moments with 
um, the TV that's nailed up against the redwoods. I think that's around the Thanatoid roast scene, but someone can correct me on that. Um, you know, it's a great unit of iconography, but what is it when it's divorced from this particular time and place? Because Pynchon very much is an author of time and place. Um, so, but again, um, PTA has done some pretty incredible work, so I hold out hope. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm with you. I, he's one of my favorite directors, and I'm I'm hoping that if that if this is what it is, that he has a way to. I think he's a smart enough director and writer to hopefully bring out what's important in this book and not have it just as, as a sort of you know like a comedic shell of itself. But time will tell. Bonus episode content that I'm proposing right now. When it does come out, if it turns out it is Vineland, which I think we all suspect it is, you should definitely do a retrospective um, looking at the the film in relation to the novel. Oh, I'm sure we absolutely will. I oh, definitely. Like, you kind of have to. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, all of the stuff that you guys have been talking about is exactly why part of me would almost just rather see the People's Republic of Rock and Roll period of the book adapted rather than the entirety of it. You'd end up with a very different end product, but I think that at least from the the you know abuses of power and its effects on people, you can still get that pretty cleanly across in in a movie that uh, that doesn't have to be you know nine hours long to really capture all the detail like a faithful adaptation of Island would be. Mm-hmm. This is a stupid idea that doesn't really deserve airtime but i'm gonna throw it out here because the thought crossed my mind a couple weeks back and it's just been lingering in my head i have this idea in my head that vineland would make a good stage play just because it's far far less of these sort of um abstract moments of grandiose imagery like i think back to moments in gravity's rainbow like you know gottfried being shot up in the rocket or two cells talking to each other, Slothrop going down the toilet. Those things would be very difficult to depict on stage. But Vineland is mostly character interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just had this idea in my head that it would probably actually make a decent stage play. But anyway, that's just an idle thought. I, I mean, is- given how much of the book reads like a multi-camera sitcom, which is nothing if not a recorded stage play, I could mm-hmm. absolutely see why this would be a pretty good adaptation to to the theater. I had never even thought about that. That's like probably the perfect mode to depict this both uh, thematically and just in terms of the practicalities of it. Multi-camera sitcom. Love it. Great suggestion. (laughs) That would be, man, this is, this idea is going to live in my head for a while now. (laughs) Perhaps we'll just have to make an adaptation of the first scene with Isaiah 2-4 in the closet. (laughs) <laughs> all right who's gonna set up the gofundme yeah yep, put it on yep. our youtube channel <laughs> that would be a really dark one act play Just... <laughs> yeah a father yeah. and daughter arguing about whether or not she's having sex with somebody and then that man shows up who they've been arguing about and then proceeds to pitch them on like a, a, a shooting spree An indoor shooting spree gallery or, yeah, range exactly. or whatever yeah you joke about that, but wasn't there escape from Gaza escape rooms um, yeah, being pitched are. on the internet this week? So, like, you know, you say this yeah. as if it's just some dark piece of comedy, but, you know, <laughs> reality can be just as dark, if not worse. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, we Absolutely. also did talk about how it, you know, rage rooms are a thing now, and 
Uh-huh. That's kind of essentially almost the same thing. I mean, mate, have you seen the cost of rent these days? I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just think as, as a piece of art, it would lack any catharsis and be frustrating. Yeah. Seth, did you have any particular character in this book that really stood out to you? Um, this is, I, I think, I don't, you know, not to paint all of his prior work in, in a negative light, but I think Vineland is is kind of the first, if we're looking at Penchon's work chronologically speaking, I think this is the first time where he really puts characters first. Um, you could maybe say that about Lot 49, um, but they're, given that there weren't as many characters in that book, I think Vineland's a better representation of that. Um, is there a particular character that you felt like um, you really um, kind of attached to in, in your most recent read-through or just have in, in all of your readings of it? Yeah, I'll sort of hedge and give you two because I think they're sort of contingent on one another. The relationship between Zoid and Prairie is just the one that works for me the greatest. There's so mm-hmm. much... Uh, completely sincere love and tenderness there in spite of these really dire conditions expressed upon the two of them and you know the difficulty of prairie's journey to uncover her mother's checkered past but i just think the two of them are fantastic together um and it's probably pynchon at his most optimistic so they're the two that i always come back to and they're part of what makes this one of the least punishing of his reads for want of a better phrase. Mm. I'd actually like to direct that question to everybody. Uh, Luke, yeah, yeah. Who, who would be, who would be the character that really stands out to you out of this book? Um, that's a good question. It's probably Zoid for me. Um, he's kind of the most interesting to me for some reason. Um, I identify with him in some ways. Um, yeah, I don't know. Will, what about you? I I think I would have to, in, in terms of just standout characters in, in such broad sense, I have to go with uh, DL. I think that she's a... Outside of the, 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 the pillar of the family at the center of the plot, I think that she's... Obviously, she's the most fleshed-out character, and I think that she's a really interesting amalgamation of the the fantasy of Pynchon's writing and the fantasy that's in this book as well as the 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 grounded humanity and i think that just reading her character is a it, it really captures a lot of what i love about this book in particular Cody I would say so. This is uh, this is the third time I've I've read through this book, and usually Zoid and, and Prairie are my um, the, my two favorites. I think in in this most recent reading, I think I've focused more on Prairie herself um, and the various relationships that she has going through the story. I think especially by the time with the scene with her and Weed um, towards the end is is just such a uh, phenomenal growth uh, of her character, and I think that that scene in particular really stuck with me. And, and I know Kate, you and I talked about this uh, away from the show, but it I think really highlights that you know sort of new generation and and that that um, 
that idea of of Prairie and her 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 generation again to use you know to keep coming back to that uh, of them taking up the torch and carrying it and and her just level of compassion for other people throughout the story, um, I think is really another point of optimism throughout all of this. I think there's a lot of it, as Seth said, you know, the relationship between her and Zoid. Um, but I think Prairie is is just there. There's so much in her character that that I think gives us hope throughout the book that things will eventually be okay. Um, and I I found myself just really enjoying every scene that she was in um, this time around. Yeah, you're referring to the scene that made me cry in a laundromat. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's one. <laughs> Um, I, I think that my favorite character this time through, I, I would have to say, stands out as Frenessi. Um, you know, I talked in the last episode about Frenessi and Brock or, you know, to the extent of, of his other books, you know, the, the relationships between women and, and men that they should be repulsed by being sort of almost this analog to the, to the description of the kingdom of Israel in the Bible as, as being something that that's prostituting out its ideals or its its you know purpose and how that's representative of these relationships but often between countercultural figures and law enforcement and i think it'd be very easy to make that argument and to make that point but to do it within the context of a character who is still so multi-layered and multifaceted as Fernessi is over the entirety of this book really not only proves Pinchon's writing ability, but also how complicated most of the people in this generation in real life really were. It's very easy to look back at these hippies and these countercultural people and assume that everything, you know, in their life boiled down to the revolution or the struggle or the movement and that they weren't just regular people. And Fernessi is just a regular person. She's responsible for some pretty bad stuff happening and she carries a lot of guilt and remorse over those actions throughout the book but the book and Pinchon and the reader in the sort of triumvirate all still humanize her and give her the the due diligence of um you know a more complex understanding of who she is as a woman and as a standout testament not just to, to Pinchon's ability to write characters but a, an ability to write female characters gasp <laughs> yeah, I'm just bouncing off that for a second there, Kate. Um, I couldn't agree more, uh, particularly, um, oh Lord, did the thought leave my head the second I tried to say it? Say it? Right. Um, yeah, I got it. Um, it was Frenessi's sort of, uh, her inability to resist the seductions of, um, you know, power and capital as expressed through Brock Bond. I think Pynchon isn't demonizing that. I think he's no. really saying this could happen to anyone. This did happen to many people who were my peers, my generation. And I think that is focalized, particularly in the last moments with Prairie as Brock is descending toward her and she's kind of starting to see the appeal of what is coming. And um, I, I think he's trying to say, like, man, we can't we can't just decry these people and paint them with a single brush of, oh, they're just, you know, they're um, uh, sellouts or whatever. I, I think he's trying to say that, no, these are very real temptations that exist for everyone in a particularly 
difficult point in history. Um, and so I think there's a lot of tenderness paid toward Frenessi, despite the fact that she's, you know, a complicated character. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, does anyone have any, any final thoughts on the book? Anything that they want to, to bring up to make sure that we discuss before we, we wrap up? Um, any last questions for Seth? I have a last question for everyone, but it's, I, I would like to get, if anybody has anything specific to the book, I would like to hear those thoughts before I ask that question. I think I'm out. Um, can I, can I throw out a question before your question, Cody? Of course. Yeah. Um, because I think one of the larger projects of this show that you guys are doing is to invite new readers into Pynchon's work and help people appreciate him better. Mm -hmm. How would you sell Vineland as either a starting point or just as a book that people should read, what would kind of be the elevator pitch that you would offer people to make it an attractive um, suggestion for something to pick up out of the thousands and thousands of available books we have at any given moment? That's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't think I would recommend it as a first pinch-on book for anyone. Um, I, I'm not going to... I wouldn't talk anyone out of reading it as a first book. Um, but I would certainly try to steer them in a, in a slightly different direction. Um, but as far as, you know, just the, the idea of recommending the book on its own merits, um, uh, that's a tricky one. Cause I tend to, I, when I recommend books, I try to tailor them to the person to whom I'm recommending them. And, and pretty much no one in my circle, uh, reads the weird literature that I really tend to enjoy for the most part. <laughs> Oh, uh, the sci-fi fantasy too. stuff. Yeah, the, I read a lot of sci-fi fantasy stuff too, so I could, that is much easier to sell uh, for a lot of people. But I think for something like Pinchon, um, I, I think ultimately this is a book that is is dealing with a lot of, of complex ideas, a lot of really heavy thematic ideas, um, and is telling a very important, timeless story but it is done with a sense of uh, compassion and a sense of humor and um, a sort of unique perspective that a lot of, a lot of other authors are not necessarily incapable of, of reaching, but I think a lot of other authors would take the easy road in trying to present a story with these themes and maybe just try to make it about one or two of them. Um, I think it's a, a really good book and I, I would even broaden this statement out to really any of Pinchon's novels. I think it's a really good book for a reader who wants to really be absorbed in a story, but who also wants to take their time and appreciate not just the story, but the words on the page and the way in which he is, he is writing his stories. Um, I don't think you have to be an English major to appreciate his work, but I think, <laughs> I, I do think that it can make a reader more appreciative of language and of storytelling and of, of prose. Um, I know when I, when I got into pinch on, it was, it was right before the inherent vice movie came out and I had really hadn't read a lot. I, there, I took a big 
break from reading for a good chunk of my of my life uh starting around college um and getting into inherent vice and then i jumped from there into against the day um really gave me more to love about literature than i than i had kind of remembered i loved about it i think that part of it was that i lost my passion for reading for a long time and and reading his work specifically uh reminded me what it is i like about reading i i love i love simple stories i love garbage sci-fi and fantasy stuff i love the real easy to read stuff that's just a fun entertaining read um but at the same time i really i really do love these these dense books that make me slow down and appreciate the words on the page and and i think give me a sense of fulfillment that a lot of other authors can't do at the same level as him um so it's just it's a it's a fantastic book I think for people who love to read and who love to really take in a book on a, on a number of levels and it's endlessly rereadable. So that's my long-winded elevator pitch. That was <laughs> ground floor to about floor one hundred. Um, I th- I think that my elevator pitch would be uh is the real world history of how the government infiltration dismantles countercultural movements too depressing for you to read. But do you still want to figure out how they do it in a fictional context? You should read Vineland by Thomas Pynchon. I think is probably the That's... the the elevator pitch that I would give people on this one. Yeah, I I think I would I would broadly go with that style of pitch, Kate. Um, but I would to to bring it back to the more broad marketing type stuff that that Cody brought into this conversation. I think that the demographic you're looking for is somebody who is a late boomer to a, an early millennial, somebody who considered doing like an English degree or a literature degree, and somebody who, you know, read Dickens and Twain or even just like basically got off of the, the, the quote unquote what we would now qualify as literary fiction train. Um, right around early modernism. I think I think that it's a book that is, if this is your first Thomas Pynchon book, that's the person who's going to like it the most. Is somebody who is used to, uh, a, 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 the sort of all-encompassing prose of those early modernists, um, or somebody like Henry James, where you're talking a, a lot about the things that postmodernism would later take as themes but you haven't gotten to the formal point of everything being driven by those themes i think if you're somebody whose favorite james joyce novel is uh dubliners i think this is probably the only pension book you might like oh that's a good that's a good one i would just float the idea as well as it's um it's a novel that works on layers of depth and meaning depending what kind of um capacity of attention and uh, investment you have to offer it at any given time. So the first time through, if you just want to enjoy it on the level of slapstick, you know, a fella in drag jumping through a window with a bejeweled chainsaw and um, Godzilla tracks and ninjas and exploding palm hands, you've got it there. And then maybe you come back to it with a little more space in your head. So now you start to discover these complex and really um, beautiful and nuanced interpersonal relationships. And then you come back with even more, you know, capacity. And now you've got this uh, incredible history of 
power and oppression and how entire generations of people were co-opted and uh, dissolved and fractured into a thousand incompatible social silos. Um, I think it's a novel that can work for you on a number of different levels, depending on how much you have to give it at any given time. Yeah, I think that's a great thing to bring up with this book in particular, because I think it's true with all of his novels. I think you can read Crying of Lot 49 as a, as a parody of a detective novel, mm -hmm. and you can read um, you could read uh, Mason and Dixon as just a farce, um, or you can read them on that deep thematic level. And I think this book is where he is actually delineating those layers to an actually coherent degree. Mm. Maybe we could make a like a supercut of all of our pre-show commercials and use that as like a selling point. <laughs> Are you confused? <laughs> Luke, what about you? What would be your elevator pitch for this one? Um, I would probably try to sell people on the fact that it's a pension novel, um, but the characters are are pretty fleshed out and three dimensional. I kind of I don't think that I don't really buy into the whole early pension has flat characters thing, but um, I do think that that's a pretty that's kind of a recurring criticism for a reason um, in that they're not as fleshed out as they are later. Um, so, you know, if you want to read a kind of more encyclopedic novel uh, with a with a large uh, like an ambitious um, scope, uh, I would read Vineland. Um, I've also seen references to uh a professor and scholar who had assigned Vineland in a college class and she said that it's the one pinch of novel that um the women in her class would actually enjoy that they actually enjoyed um so if you want to read pinch and writing strong female characters if you want to read pinch and writing three-dimensional fleshed out characters and still read um and still kind of get a sense of his ambition and his encyclopedic kind of knowledge and encyclopedic scope of his novels i would i would read vineland uh kind of like cody i don't i don't necessarily think i would recommend vineland to be the first pitch of novel you would read although i don't think it's i don't think it would be bad for that i think you just kind of have to go in knowing that it's not uh his best novel in my opinion um that things you know like the but there are things that you know, everything that that i love about pension is is present in Vineland. Um, so yeah, I mean, it'd be a mixture of reading fleshed out characters, uh, having the appeal uh, for women more than most of his novels, and kind of the fact that the novel still kind of captures the the wide and kind of ambitious scope of a lot of his work. Well, I think that brings us to the question Cody was going to ask. Yes. Um, I would like to know uh, from everybody what um, what other, not necessarily just books, but what what music, what movies, what TV series do you feel um, are similar to Vineland that our, our listeners can go and, and try to find and, and experience? I know we've already been over David Lynch a lot, but I would say Twin Peaks is a good one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, I would say like Twin Peaks, um, Lost Highway in particular, I would also say feels relevant as well as Blue Velvet. Um, the music of like Juju, I would also probably recommend. Um, I would also probably say 
early, you know, to understand like Isaiah two four and and his clash with with Zoid and the, the cultural elements there. You know, like early punk, early thrash metal stuff. Since they are from the Bay Area, a lot of early thrash metal came from that part of yep. the country at that time. Um, you know, I would I would say to then go back to Zoid's generation, like Steely Dan and Grateful Dead and a lot of the like psychedelic or jazz fusion bands feels particularly relevant relevant to his character um just because i'm a frank zappa obsessive and he has the mustache i'll also recommend the music of frank zappa absolutely um especially some of frank zappa's more political music um you know dickie's such an asshole feels like a particularly relevant frank zappa track to this to this book um I, I wish that I had like some more, you know, non Pinchon related novels to recommend off the back of it too. Um, you could almost say that uh, Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James has some crossover territory thematically with this. Um, yeah. And, you know, other things that deal with, with fictionalized elements of, of government, you know, control or oversight or um, history books related to the breakup of the Black Panthers or other COINTELPRO movies. Certainly, um, the work of the FBI busting up uh, AIM in the 70s um, would also be super relevant here. So that, that would be the stuff that I would go to. I'm going to throw out a weird film suggestion. Um, Boots Riley's film, Sorry to Bother You. Ooh, it yeah, that's a good one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It doesn't really mirror the aesthetics in the same way, but the idea of individual people being forced to make decisions about what they choose to maintain and shirk in their personal identity in an effort to survive in a capitalist system. Um, I think that's kind of got an interesting synergy with Vineland, even if um, it's a pretty out there film. (laughs) Yeah, in kind of the same vein, although it feels lame because we've we've talked about it multiple times on this show, is uh, Mumbo Jumbo by Ishmael Reed. Mm-hmm. like you know in gravity's rainbow pension calls it you know a, a great primer on how these kinds of uh you know co-intel pro type activities go down and i do think that uh vineland is in some ways pension trying to do that himself from a slightly less esoteric and slightly more traditional formally uh perspective so i, I think that i mean Otherwise, I struggle to come up with any solid suggestions. Yeah, I mean, building off of, and thank you both, Seth and Will, to um, for bringing up those options. You know, like the book, uh, The Spook Who Sat by the Door um, by Sam Greenlee would also probably be a, a pretty interesting text to read alongside Vineland. Um, if you were to flip it to to the thematic elements of the the civil rights movement and then sort of, you know, black militant issues. That would certainly be a relevant piece of text there. Um, and that, that book is referenced in Atlanta and a lot of other aspects of Afrofuturism as well, which certainly um, Boots Riley's stuff is, is, is a part of that movement. So there, there is like a whole other you know, literature arena that you could step into that, that deals with some of the same stuff, but from a different perspective than Pinchon is. I'll throw out um, a couple more here. Um, just relating back to the Thanatoids and this sort of idea of the ghosts left in suspension from a generation since past. Um, De Five Bloods by Spike Lee. Um, that would be one that I would throw out as a film option that deals with Vietnam War vets in particular. 
Um, and then in terms of just from a literary standpoint, if we're looking at the concepts of power and oppression and resistance as it relates to the development of America, the entirety of Volman's Seven Dream series, we kind of alluded to the ice shirt earlier, um, I would kind of point people in that direction as well. I think two books that uh, would go well with this, with with uh, Blind Land, are uh, Child of God by McCarthy. Um, they both have the kind of absurd uh, or pastoral absurdity. Child of God definitely has a much harder edge to it uh, than Blind Land. Uh, it's set in a lot earlier of a time period, but I think there are some similarities in their views on America. And I also think uh, McCarthy's Suchery would be good in terms of the similarity with the humor um, and the, again, the, the view of America. Yeah, I would, I would say those are all great recommendations. Um, obviously, you know, Twin Peaks for sure has a lot of Vineland vibes to it. Um, I would say as far as music, um, you know, like Kate said, go listen to a lot of the, the early punk that was coming around, especially like California um, bands like Minutemen were great. They did some great albums. Um, and I would also recommend something like Sonic Youth's Daydream Nation, I think has a lot of um, interesting thematic ideas that might tie into a, a story like this. Um, and even some, maybe some of their slightly earlier stuff as well. Um, just that kind of chaotic noise rock that they uh, really perfected. Um, yeah, Marlon James's Brief History of Seven Killings is an absolutely great recommendation. Um, that book was, I read that for the first time last year. That was one of the best books I've read in a while. Um, but yeah, everyone, I think those are all great, great recommendations. So those of you listening, if you haven't checked any of those out, go do find them they're great everything um that everyone mentioned is all is all great stuff all right is there anything uh last call any questions anyone wants to ask or bring up before we wrap this uh this season of our show up it's, it's weird that we're done with vineland i don't <laughs> i don't want to be done with vineland just yet i feel like there's so much more to go and, and talk about but it's been great i've i've really enjoyed our discussions um this is it's not my favorite pinch on, but it's up there. Um, and, I, and this, this reread definitely solidified its place in, in my, um, favorite of his work. So, um, thank you all for, uh, the, the great discussions that we've had over the, the 15 chapters of this book and, and Seth for, for coming on today and sharing your thoughts on it. Just as a, um, a listener and now a casual participant in the show, I want to say, uh, thank you so much for having me on really love what you guys are doing it is not easy to sustain the depth of discussion that you're all doing with the project and continue that going week after week chapter after chapter and all the research and you know extra textual reading and uh, whatnot that's required to do something like this so um i hope you know it's appreciated and i hope you'll continue it yeah i don't think we have any plans stopping until (laughs) until we're done See ya. Bye. That's my goal. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, we will see you guys in a couple of weeks as we start Bleeding Edge. We hope you enjoy the bonus episodes that we'll be releasing in between now and then. Thanks for listening. Bye.